0: About to begin. So, on the count of three, can you guys give a big round of applause for Austin Kelly and Chris? One,
1: two, three.
2: All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Chris Brennan, and this is episode 208 of the Astrology Podcast. So, today is Thursday, May 23rd, 2019, starting at exactly 8.30 p.m. in Seattle, Washington. Uh, As I said, this is the 208th episode of the show, and for those who are watching the recording afterwards, uh, we are doing a live podcast event at the 35th Annual Northwest Astrological Conference. So, welcome... So we're recording this podcast in front of an audience of Astrologers Live, and this is our second time doing a live event. We actually did our first one at the United Astrology Conference in May of last year, and we had such a good time, and it was so much fun that we decided to do it again this time at Norwalk. So uh, Norwalk, this is actually, uh, most people don't know this, but this is the first time that Norwalk has ever sold out in its 35-plus-year history. So and part of that I think demonstrates that's like a really um physical and tangible manifestation of the sudden rise in popularity of astrology over the course of the past year or two uh that so many like newspapers and magazines and blogs have been reporting on but I think this is one of the first times where you can actually point to something really tangible and say astrology really is getting more popular for some reason at this point in time. So uh what are, we do? what are we doing here? We're going to do a Q&A tonight where we've accepted a bunch of questions that have been sent in by listeners over the course of the past few weeks uh, through the podcast website, through YouTube, through Twitter, through Instagram, and a bunch of different places. And we're going to be answering some listener questions and trying to have some interesting discussions about what's really happening in the community at this point in time. Uh, so joining me today uh, are my two co-hosts, uh, Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic. Uh, so welcome,
0: guys. You guys are Thank excited you. to be here? Thanks, Chris. It's nice to be here.
3: It's nice to be uh, in person. You're not in my computer screen right now, so this is an improvement.
0: We, we will be
3: later. You <laughs> that's true. Right.
2: Uh, so uh, it seems like a new generation of astrologers has really come into the field over the past few years, and that's something that's been really evident for us, because we're all roughly in the same generation, roughly speaking, right? Roughly speaking,
0: Chris. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Austin and I are definitely in the
4: same generation. Yeah. yeah
0: no. You're honorary old like us. Yeah. 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 Yes. Right. If not biologically.
4: Yeah.
0: Uh, so one of the
2: themes tonight, <laughs> one of the one of the themes that we talked about in trying to prepare for this is the idea of of lineage and uh, passing on uh, passing on the tradition through having sort of in-person contacts with different astrologers or astrologers of different generations. And that's actually going to be a recurring theme. And it's one of the themes uh, that was asked several times in some of the listener questions, Mm -hmm. right? Was the idea of, or one of the questions was, why do you guys think it's so important for people to attend live events and conferences?
3: Well, I mean, I have a little answer. I'm going to talk about this a bit more tomorrow, but... you want to come to the conferences so you can meet people that a couple of years later you can actually start a podcast with because that's how this podcast came about. We met through going to conferences together and decided to just have a go. So, I mean, that's not the only reason to come and hang out in person, but it's, you never know where it can lead. There's a spontaneity and a randomness, but also an excitement when you connect with people in the flesh that you can't really recreate online, I don't think
2: yeah well and it's that thing about astrology that you don't know what you don't know or you can't can't know and that's one of the things that especially happens in person and meeting other astrologers is there's a very um, instantaneous realization that they sometimes can provide you with information or a perspective that you're not familiar with and not used to
3: yeah and i think the idea of you don't know what you don't know and then when it hits you in the face, you might actually be really inspired by what you didn't know you didn't know. But the hallway collisions that can happen at conferences or the you know discussions over drinks in the bar uh, or just there was two random people that I was like, oh, have you met this person? Oh, we need to go for dinner. And off they wandered. And I'm not sure those two people would have necessarily connected otherwise, but they happen to have a need at the same time here in person so just that melting pot of connecting with people you wouldn't normally get to interact
2: with yeah and that's how you and I met of course at UAC 100
3: because uh, I was never on MySpace so
2: right
1: <laughs> I'm a bit of a tech
3: like you know idiot and so I was never on MySpace so I wouldn't have met you guys other than doing something like this
2: right yeah uh, so we met at UAC in 2012 yeah and then Austin you and I met at you guys have known each other longer Project Hindsight, yeah. Well,
0: you we were pals on MySpace, and right. you invited yeah. me. You were like, you got to come down to Project Hindsight. Yeah, and that was 2006. I, I would like to add one more benefit of yeah. meeting offline and you know coming to a conference is that at least you have an experience of two or three days of community and family or tribe mm-hmm. with other astrologers that you can use to contextualize hating people online. You're like. <laughs> You know what? They're, you know, and you can say, you know what? In person, they're really pretty great. I yeah. know that they're awful on Twitter, yeah. but like, just so you have that context.
3: That's really... That is because how people appear online versus how they might be in person can be quite different. Yeah. yeah.
2: Sure. Well, yeah. And famously, that's how I met Mark Jones. Yeah. Was Mark and I met at a conference, and he leaned across the table, and he said, you know, you're doing great damage to the astrological community. <laughs>
0: I was at that table,
3: actually.
2: Yeah, were sitting there at the time.
3: But when uh, else, in what other universe would you and Mark Jones have sat down and had a beer together, which you've now right. done we,
2: more than once? Yeah, and we've had many podcasts together and gotten together many times. He's not in the room, is he? No. <laughs> okay. I can keep saying. He couldn't, he couldn't bear to witness
0: you savage astrology no. once again, <laughs> Chris.
2: <laughs> uh, but no, but then I shot back with uh, like a really witty response that I can't remember right now. <laughs> I impressed yes. him that I was more thoughtful in what I was doing with my astrology and was at least making the attempt to be ethical and conscientious about it than he assumed from never yeah. having met me in person. And that exchange then built up like a, a you know mutual respect between the two of us so that even if we don't have the same type of astrology, the same approach, or even if we disagree, meeting in person that one time created a sort of friendship and a level of respect that wouldn't have existed otherwise.
3: Yeah, the professional respect, courtesy, and then, I mean, yeah, and then you guys have had late night chats.
1: Right. Which
3: would just never have happened online, because online, you tend to seek out what you like or what you know. You tend to go looking for something specifically that you you want to find out about, and yeah, that's one of the beauty so the chris jones the chris brennan mark jones story is right a good in person yeah. and then the, i love the origin story of our podcast which is definitely an in-person conference thing
2: of meeting at uac and then starting the forecast episode yeah 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 uh, where we came home from a norwac and just said let's
3: we literally started the month after Norwalk 2013 yeah we we're like this sounds like a good idea or no 2015 i think i beg your pardon and we tried it apparently a few people were interested
2: Sure. Um, this is actually a, actually a good question. How many people in the audience is yeah. this your first time attending a conference ever? Wow. 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 Yes. All right. <laughs> sure, sure. Awesome. Well, that's really heartening and really exciting uh, because for one of the things we talked about is for, for several years, we there was always this question of like, when are the younger generations of astrologers or where are the mm-hmm. newer astrologers and when are they going to show up into the community? And I think we can definitely say finally that they've arrived. Um, and there's a, yes. real, there's a real sort of palpable sense of one generation of astrologers coming into the community at this time with some of the Pluto in Scorpio and Pluto in Sag, Sag generation, yeah. uh, which is weird to say. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, when, you, when you remember people's birthdays as transits, yep. right. You're like, oh yeah, I remember when that hit. That opposed my moon, right? Like that's you were not born yet, right? right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
2: I, when you remember what you had lunch one day, and that's somebody's birth chart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's that piece of it, and seeing that, but there's also uh, this real sense that there's we're also in the process slowly, and sometimes more rapidly than we would like. Uh, losing a generation of astrologers as some major figures in the community have passed away recently. Mm-hmm. So one of them was Donna Van Toen who yeah. organized the Soda, Ast- Soda Astrology Conference. Yeah. Uh, we've also uh, Robert Schmidt who was one of the leaders of the translation project and the sort of movement to revive traditional astrology also passed away in the past year. Uh, So there's also this greater sense of urgency with the conferences of bringing together astrologers and trying to connect some of those generations to have that transmission of not just knowledge, but just lived experience while there's still a chance to and while we still have some time. And that's part of what happens sometimes at these conferences where you can actually meet uh, a famous astrologer or an older astrologer, and um, sometimes even just shaking somebody's hand or attending a lecture Mm. can be part of that transmission, like... Like, imagine if you could say that, you know, you had attended a lecture by um, Dane Rudyard, for example. There's some mm-hmm. older astrologers, like my friend, Mitra George, who met Dane Rudyard in person. And while well, they never talked, just yeah. being able to, like, have attended a lecture like that is kind of interesting in and of itself and, and means something.
3: Yeah, I think you get more of a sense of a person in the flesh. You know, most of our communication is nonverbal. And so you will get more of the essence of whatever is being presented to you if you're in the room when the lecture is being delivered versus if you're on a webinar and there are certain circumstances of course where you can't get together in person or what have you but when there is an opportunity to be in person austin you made a beautiful comment i think at our last live uh recording about something, and I'm paraphrasing, so correct me, um, something about Uranus and Taurus and, like, a radical act is to show up in person. Yeah, That's a beautiful quote. Thank you. And I really agree with that. I think that's a huge part of what we're doing and seeing.
0: Yeah, uh, since I said that, and I've been, you know, I've had a year to watch, and I'm pretty sure that was right. Yeah. Um, Like, that seems to be the, the site of resistance is in person. yeah. Um, I I wanted to add something, um, uh, something, I don't know, both of you said about people from different generations talking in the context of lineage. I think it's very easy to think about lineage primarily in terms of technical material and experience with how to do astrology like that being passed down as being what lineage is and that Mm -hmm. certainly is true but there's also just the experience of being an astrologer Mm -hmm. like not that many people just spend all of their time <laughs> looking at charts and talking to people about. Right. It's a very unusual job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't know anybody who was an astrologer before I went full time.
1: No.
0: Um, and so there's, and there are things to learn about just living that way, what it's like to do that, as well as understanding what is unique about being an astrologer in this day and age and what's not unique. Right. What is shared with somebody who is doing it in 1967 Mm -hmm. and what's really honestly quite different from doing it um, back then. Right. So I just wanted to add that.
2: That's a great point. Um, All right. So before we get too far afield, let's start jumping into some of our questions or jumping into more questions so we can keep going. So even though. Uh, normally, sometimes we might end up talking for like three or four hours. We actually have a time limit on this. We have a episode. hard stop tonight. <laughs> so we're going to try to get through about fifteen questions. We've had to summarize some of them because some of them were great uh, questions, but they're kind of long or kind that's of true. Uh, lengthy. So we did short. And there were some, some
3: questions we were able to put together because they were on similar topics.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the first one was kind of a series of a few questions that people had, and it has to do with this debate that's happening or at least discussions that are happening in the astrological community right now about who is an astrologer and who qualifies as an astrologer. Uh, so one of the questions came in from Twitter um, at Alkite. They said, how do you define different levels of knowledge slash competency in engaging with astrology, like astrologers versus astrology students versus astrology enthusiasts? Um, yeah, so that's our, that's one of our first major questions yeah. is how do we define an astrologer and how do you distinguish somebody who is a like let's say a professional astrologer versus just a student or an enthusiast and can you
1: okay
0: um okay well but, like, i'll start that's okay. um uh, yeah. that's a toughie it's a yeah. big one right <laughs> um and uh, it's it's tough because i'm uh, okay so i'll just start one of the no, I mean. ways that i was thinking about this is If we if we take a profession that is less rare and mysterious, like a chemist, um, somebody who has a PhD in chemistry who does chemistry regularly is definitely a chemist. Um, Somebody who has a bachelor's in chemistry and does chemistry regularly is also a chemist. But we most people would probably agree that the person who's at the PhD level is Mm -hmm. like chemistier, right? (laughs) But we wouldn't say that the person who, you know, who's got their bachelors and performs the act of chemistry is not a chemist. Yeah. Um, And so this is an issue to a certain degree with any word that means somebody who does something. Yeah. Um, And so there are differentiations to make, but it's hard to... You know, it's like who owns that one word, like the, you know, who's an astrologer? Um, I think there's a big difference between somebody who does that every day and has done that for 30 years yeah. versus like somebody who's kind of gotten into it over the last year. Yeah. Right. You know, they might both be doing astrology, but there is a, there is a difference.
3: There's a huge difference. There's a difference. I know one of the delicate components of Discussing this question about who might be an astrology student versus who might be an astrology enthusiast and who might be an actual astrologer uh, is that you know the time factor. You know, do you have to notch up a certain amount of years? And I don't know that that's necessarily the answer. That you know, you have to study for five years because they're studying for five years and then they're studying for five years. So there's there there is a time component, but there's also a quality component in terms of. An astrology enthusiast could be someone who's watching some videos on YouTube or following some channels on Instagram and wants a little more than their horoscope, but maybe not a lot more. And then there could be, you know, an astrology student who might be taking a set training program with a particular astrologer, almost like a mentorship, but not quite. It could be like a dedicated style program. And that person may be really interested in pursuing work as an astrologer. Um, But the other thing, you know... That comes to my mind when thinking about this to your point about chemists when i was doing my counseling training and and what is very common in the counseling field is you do your formal study so you would be a counseling student and then you have a period where you're very closely supervised where you are actually doing counseling in the field where you are working with real life clients and real life problems but you're very closely supervised by a much more senior practitioner. And you have to do a certain amount of these supervision hours before they will unleash you, if you like, onto the unsuspecting public. And we don't have necessarily anything built like that into astrology, especially if we're talking about astrology from a consulting perspective. And I know that there are a number of other ways to use astrology. You might be a research astrologer or more of a magical practitioner astrologer, but there is a transition period between learning the theory practicing it and then feeling or having or developing some level of competency. And of course, there's a different level of competency between someone who's just finished their supervision versus the person who was actually doing the supervision who's presumably got more experience, whether that's more years or just a greater number of clients or training under their belt. So it's very nuanced, but it is an important conversation to have because we do have so many more people coming into our field right now.
2: Right. Uh, yeah, and I always get nervous when people start trying to make hard distinctions about who's not an astrologer, saying that somebody's not an mm. astrologer because the certification is so, so all over the place in the astrological community that that's not a, like a sufficient litmus test for who's an astrologer. Because okay. many of the most famous and influential astrologers in the 20th century have no certification at all whatsoever, and nobody would question their expertise in the field. Mm. Um, Similarly, though, there's also people that have been studying astrology on a a low level for many decades, but still may not be really um, experts in a particular area or may never have made the jump to being professional full-time astrologers, whereas there's other astrologers that have mainly only been doing it for a relatively short span of time, but due to dedication Mm. and genuine interest and maybe even some sort of inherent aptitude, could be even better at it or or more um, impressive in what they're able to do with clients, even than somebody that's been studying for 30 years. And that's one of the things that makes me nervous about uh, sort of critiques of people that have only been doing it for a relatively short span of time.
0: Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff there. One thing that occurred to me while both of y'all were talking was... Um, So one criteria that's being that's implied by a lot of what's being said is not just length of time, but depth of immersion. And then from there, where my mind went was uh, for some people, um, I would include myself in this. um, Astrology is a way of exploring reality itself and, and an absolutely key framework for understanding experience and life. And so when somebody experiences and treats astrology as, as, as their way, that there's a depth there um, that, you know, deserves a nod or, I don't know, a word. And I'm not sure if, you know, we could say that that's a capital A astrologer or we could use a different word, but that's also a different thing. You know, if it's your thing, right? And that it's uh, sort of crucial and mixed into the concrete... Um, by you know with which you build your reality that's you know that's a thing and that's worth noting it's different than like someone who said who thinks who's like yeah astrology is super helpful i love getting astrology's point of view on something Mm -hmm. like for timing when to open my business or throw a party or wherever yeah when there's nothing wrong with that but those are different types those are different relationships to astrology yeah
3: so you're kind of saying, Austin, that the more immersed in it, the more connected to the subject matter and the material a person is going to be in their deeper their understanding paths?
0: Um, hopefully.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. Well,
0: it's just, it's just a parameter that struck me as relevant.
2: Mm. Yeah. All right. So um, yeah, that's a really hard one. So we, we, when we discussed this question, we realize that part of the answer is there's no simple answer. And, and just sort of be a little bit careful about trying to make hard and fast distinctions, because you get into some really tricky areas with it. But there's a whole interesting discussion about this is happening recently. Um, I know Caitlin Coppock has written an interesting article about it right Mm -hmm. Uh, so Caitlin's written an interesting article I know Joe Gleason you did a long video on YouTube on your channel recently that was really good and an article on that topic and there was also like a really famous um not famous but um noteworthy uh media article recently by a reporter who's kind of almost singled out a younger astrologer saying that this person um wasn't maybe competent at what they were doing because they weren't aware of what an ephemeris was, even though they were seeing clients. Which, on the one hand, many astrologers took as a valid critique and perhaps was on some level, but on the other hand, then it really comes to the broader question of, you know. We don't have a specific answer of what it takes to be an astrologer, mm. and what one person thinks is like a, a litmus test and is something you have to know to be an astrologer. Another astrologer may say, "Well, no, that's not that important at all."
0: Uh, I think that we, if we were to um, come up with criteria for what would qualify someone to be an expert in astrology, mm. right? Or like then we're not going. Yeah, we're not going to agree on everything, but we'll mm. probably have a pretty firm, like a solid goal. ground. Um, you know, to be an expert is different than just being an astrologer, right? Part of the difficulty with that word yeah. is that it's, you know, it's a noun that means someone verbs. Um, yeah. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, and it's, um, so this actually leads into our next question. Why don't we move on to that, which is uh, Jason on Twitter, uh, at Jason and Kai. Did I get that right, Jason? Are you in the audience? Hey. Thanks for joining us. One of your questions that you asked is you said, this is probably going to become increasingly common, but what role could professional organizations play in protecting astrologers and their content? Uh, And there was a follow-up question, a different question that was in the same vein from Shakira uh, at the astrology. She said, do you have, is Shakira in the audience? She is. Hey. She said, do you have any ideas on how the community could go about solidifying and popularizing a unified code of ethics, understanding there have been, I understand there have been many published by various orgs, uh, but how can we make one that's widely agreed upon and then make it well known amongst the community? So both of these are great questions because they both tie into what I think is a bit of a crisis that's come up recently in the Mm -hmm. past decade. Which is what is the the purpose or what purpose do the astrological organizations serve, and to what extent can they adapt themselves to the changing times, where um, from in, in my opinion, like some of the things that the organizations used to be really good for or that astrologers used to depend on them for, have suddenly become, if not uh, less relevant, if not completely irrelevant, sometimes less relevant. So for example, um, publishing astrological journals for example where now that like every astrologer has a private blog and you can read on online articles so easily the astrological publications and newsletters have suddenly almost fallen by the wayside and are much less important or crucial in terms of the broader overall community so the question is what can the astrological orgs do to stay relevant and these are actually two things that might actually be relevant things in the future So one of them is the question of um, protecting astrologers and their content. I mean, is that a relevant thing that orgs should be doing or should be enforcing in any way? And then similarly, um, ethics, like are ethics, something that the orgs should be charged with. And if they should be like, how can they even enforce ethical guidelines? uh, Or should they even try to?
3: Well, part of the challenge, I was laughing at one of the points in these questions, which is how can we make one that's widely agreed upon and i was like well then we've got to get all the soldiers to agree on something and we all know how tricky that can be (laughs) if we bring up some of the more contentious things that we massively disagree on but you know what happens in a lot of other industries is there is a regulating or a licensing body that creates some type of code of ethics or code of conduct if you will and people who are licensed or registered through that organization have to kind of um, confirm that they'll follow their code of conduct. And because we don't have any, you know, global or central licensing or regulation in astrology, and I'm not necessarily saying we should, but it's like even if we all could agree on a code of conduct, who's going to manage that process? Like there are some issues with, um, I guess, just getting everyone on the same page. I think I think each of the orgs do have a code of conduct that they probably encourage their members or they enforce with their members because there's been a couple of issues in the past. Uh, With that, But yeah, it's that some of the issues with this are trying to get everyone to agree on something. And I'm not saying that just because it's hard, we shouldn't do it. But it's just a little bit like herding cats at times.
2: Yeah. And that's become more of an issue in the past 20 years, because most of the ethical guidelines were established in the late 90s and early 2000s, when the community of like Western astrologers was a little bit more monolithic Mm -hmm. uh, because it was largely modern Western psychological, psychological astrology and so yeah. most of the ethic guidelines just copied things from counseling and sort of psychologist guidelines of mm-hmm. codes of conduct, conduct with clients uh, or with patients. Uh, but in the past 20 years we've had a revival of all of these different older forms of astrology like first with horary astrology becoming very popular with some of the renaissance astrologers and the popularization of william lilly's work then you had medieval astrology become more popular and hellenistic astrology there was also a revival of indian astrology uh, which has many of its own ethical sort of guidelines and sort of history and lineage that went along with it so now there's so many different forms of astrology that clearly the ethical guidelines that were developed 20 years ago when it was just paying attention to wo- largely one tradition are not long no longer entirely suitable for all of those different traditions?
3: They're not, because I I suspect that the guidelines that emerge from the modern Western psychological style of astrology would have had maybe limits or conditions around forecasting or predictive astrology, but some of the other forms of astrology that have become more popular, horary, for instance, are quite explicitly predictive or about... You know, identifying certain outcomes. So there's right. a, a clash right there. Even though you know they're not doing a bad thing by doing a horror astrology session, but it would technically be against one particular style's code of conduct. Right.
0: And so you 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 have to you have to ask what a what is uh, what am I doing, and then what is the ethical way to do that? That's a There's an way. ethical and unethical way to do horror. Of course. Which, Is going to be very different than using astrology to assist psychotherapeutic work, um, which is going to be very different from ethical electional work, right? Like the idea that we could have um, a code of conduct that would cover uh, depth psychology practice um, and use those same guidelines for someone whose primary work is doing elections for a real estate company like those are really different and the ethical versions of those is going to look really different Different. and so I mean I think we can um I I don't think it's at all an impossible project and if we sort what we're doing into the not that many branches right because uh, you know we've got natal and there are a couple different approaches to natal um and then there's horary and then there's electional and you know, we don't have 70 different types of astrology as far as ethical categories. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a doable project.
3: It is. I'm like, anyone want to take it on?
0: <laughs> it, it has been done. Like, Esar has specific <laughs> ethics for horary and all these different topics. In the last few years, it has been done by one of the works.
2: Okay, one of our, <laughs> we have a, a board member from ESAR who's defending his organization. Yes.
3: <laughs> uh, I feel like he, um, he's trying to protect Esau here.
2: <laughs> so Kenneth, Kenneth Miller is saying that ESAR uh, has attempted to adopt a broader ethical guidelines that cover different approaches, like horary, uh, Indian astrology. Does it to cover, like, Indian astrology, for example?
0: I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so, because there were no Indian astrologers involved, but... Sure, but the other Sam was actually on the committee. Reynolds was going to be here this weekend, but it does have. They really tried to cover all the traditional stuff and wrestle with those different um, the ethics of those different styles.
3: So this is then almost bringing it to the next point: is people don't obviously know about the ESAR (laughs) guidelines. So. Part of it then is, okay, that apparently there are some guidelines in our community. How do we let more people know that they're there and what they are? So that's also one of the issues. It's not just agreeing on it. It's then Yeah, one
2: well, part of it is that the individual um, leaders and the individual people, practitioners within individual communities need to develop their own guidelines internally first. Like what mm-hmm. does a Hellenistic astrologer, what is ethical or unethical within the context of that tradition or... Um, for evolutionary astrologers, for example. Like, I know there's some evolutionary practitioners. Is there any sort of standardized code of ethics within the evolutionary schools? Like, Sabrina? I think there's some debate around the levels of consciousness and
1: if it's ethical to label people as
2: being individuated spiritual consensus. Okay. I think that's one of them. Sure, yeah. So debates within the evolutionary... Community about whether it's ethical to label different levels of, of, of spiritual evolution? Yeah, so there's a lot of debates within the individual communities like that that have to be worked out and that may not be fully resolvable, but at least have to be done internally before those communities could then come to a larger discussion about what's broader, what's ethical, sort of universally within the astrological community as a whole. And I, I still think that that's part of what we have to work on at this point because it's only in the past. Ten or fifteen years that some Mm -hmm. of these traditions have really come into their own and started being practiced by more than just like one generation of astrologers.
3: Yeah, and I mean, just as you're talking, it's reminding me of some of the the letter to student info in the front of Lily's Christian Astrology, and even back as far as Maternus, he writes a letter to you know the practitioner. So it's not as though astrologers historically have not grappled with how to do this well because they try to tell you this is the way you should conduct yourself not just in your practice but as a person this is the way you should make yourself available this is your, the way you should communicate information that might be difficult for your client to hear i mean we're not the first astrologers to grapple with this but the struggle i think has been going on since our origins.
2: Yeah, I mean, the ethical guidelines that astrologers always develop is always relative to the cultural sensibilities of the time, mm-hmm. and that's some, so like, Firmicus Maternus says, it's not ethical to read the chart of the emperor, for example. Yeah.
0: Because uh, it will get you killed. Right. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, and Lily talks about, you know, let them know their hard fate by degrees kind of thing, like, kind of let them down easy when you have to give them an answer. Yeah. They don't want... But he's like, you still have to be honest, but and but that's a a cultural and a contextual thing
2: well and that's a genuine potential debate yeah like for example indian astrologers tend to be much more stark in their delineations and that's something that culturally at least that's just how indian astrology is for the most part whereas sometimes when that's imported into a western context it looks overly harsh or sometimes people can make accusations of being unethical yeah, uh, and questions about whether that's there's like a universal truth to that or whether there's a sort of relativism culturally that you can't like impress on on the practice of astrology in different cultures well
0: there's certainly uh, expectations of the person who booked the reading mm-hmm. you know there are a lot of um people that, You know, if I book a reading with a certain astrologer, I might go to them because I want them to just tell me what they think is most likely to happen at a given point in time. And I would like the hard facts and then we can work. I'll I'll work from there. Right. Um, But if if, uh, there are certain practitioners where that's not what I would expect at all. And I think mm, part of that part of I mean, that's a mismatch. Primarily, I think of clients expectations with what service a person offers. Um, and so that's, you know, maybe a thing about just being really clear about here's what I do or here's the range of things that I do. Tell me what you want to do and we'll do that. Yeah. And that almost
3: puts the onus back on the individual astrologers to a certain extent to be really clear about communicating what they're offering and what they will and won't do basically.
0: Right. Like if you show up, you know, if you're like, I, you know, I came here for, to discuss my soul's evolution. Yeah. And the astrologer is like, okay, so I've got some great dates for you over the next three months. Yeah. To like, you know, re- <laughs> to really, house
1: right, to to really, really
0: somebody. auspicious times. Yeah. Right. And there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. It's just like not a good match. Not a good match at all.
2: Sure. So, uh, yeah, so individual communities developing their own ethical guidelines, but then also interact, starting to interact with each other in respectful or as respectful fashion as you can. That's really the most difficult part, I think, that historically astrologers have already run into in the 90s and 2000s, which is when Mm -hmm. different traditions that have wildly different approaches start interacting, they often see each other as practicing astrology in a way that's unethical from their individual subjective standpoints. And the, pro, the, the danger is that oftentimes when those debates happen, one side or both sides will elite, immediately leap to labeling the other um, side as like doing uh, harm to their clients or, or almost being evil in some sense and resisting the tendency to do that when you start interacting with different traditions uh, because it's not... Like, even if you think that, like, still just being able to... to <laughs> just keep
0: it to yourself.
3: We you won't have to say everything we think.
2: I guess I'm just... I'm, like, thinking back to the interaction I had with Mark Jones, for example, where right. it's like he was saying that very genuinely uh, to me that That's he, true, that yeah, you were yeah.
3: damaging. He he meant it.
2: Well, he was... Con- he, had, he had a genuine... He had a genuine, had a genuine
3: concern. C-
2: concern, based on his perception, which is partially a misperception, yeah. but his assumptions about what I did when I saw clients right. that were genuine concerns for him, because he didn't want other astrologers to be like hurting people, and that was then like a, a viable concern on his part. But the uh, the important part was just the ability to dialogue about it, and that opened up. Um, room for growth on both sides because of the ability to dialogue um, despite having like major reservations about what the other was doing.
3: And that's, I mean, to go back to one of our earlier questions today, that's the whole, you could never have had that conversation over email or over messenger. Like that's a conversation to have in person, in the flesh, to nut out, you know, whatever's working and not working. Well,
0: what about really dramatic handwritten letters? No. (laughs) No, I mean... What it,
3: are you secretly referencing here,
0: Austin? No, I'm just imagining what medium... It definitely wouldn't have worked in email or over social media, but I, I think maybe, like...
3: A handwritten letter.
0: Late 19th century That's what era. I'm like, yeah.
3: How did... Like when Freud and Jung were going back and forth about arguing, yeah. they did that through letters.
2: Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's so easy to just flame each other on, like, a forum or t- over Twitter or like Facebook Twitter? or something... Yeah. For people to get into, uh, you know, major debates and to sort of dehumanize the other person in a sense and see them as doing wrong or or evil or what have you. Whereas if you're in person talking with somebody, it's easier to see the humanity and the genuineness and the earnestness of another astrologer. And that's why sometimes meeting up in person is so important to build that human connection.
3: 100%.
2: All right. So I think that's part of the answer. Uh, We kind of skipped over Jason's question, but (laughs) sorry about that. Part of it is just that, yeah, the organizations helping with content management or or having some sort of being able to exert some sort of social pressure. um, If there's another astrologer that is just ripping off other people's work clearly and plagiarism is an issue. Um, the organizations at least play some role where they could exert some pressure on people not to do things that are unethical like that. Uh, and I think that's still a valid role that the organizations could play potentially in the future. For sure. It, well,
0: yeah. one one thing when I read what role could professional organizations play in protecting astrologers. So astrology is having sort of a happy moment of intersection with the larger host culture um that happens from time to time um, there's also a divergence that is just as much the historical norm i don't know why that's funny uh,
3: <laughs> it's like the alien reference in your description basically like okay. the host the host population and the astrology well it is population.
0: it's a, it's a host culture this I is think, not yeah. our culture didn't generate astrology no that's true That's um, true
3: it's a host that's it's a nice it's just
0: <clears throat> yeah well, right it, it does race. sound yeah. parasitic right? yes. yeah okay
3: <laughs> i'm like this is vintage austin here this is a um but it's couple. a it's
0: a parasite that enriches the host <laughs> um but anyway that's
3: what, exactly what a parasite would say <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right well that's all of us so um enjoy your, your... Oh my gosh. all right i had a that's, real point a should i just quit no,
1: no, no no, <laughs> we want to hear it. It
3: was okay. just, you were entertaining as always. Okay. Yeah, um, but there's some rich commentary to come. We want to hear that. No pressure.
0: Rich. Okay, here's my rich commentary. So sometimes the host culture um, isn't so friendly towards astrology. Got it. And yep. um, I don't know. I'm going to be alive for a while. I'm probably going to live to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of fortune telling laws on the books in a lot of states that, if they were enforced as they were written. Um, could bring most of us up on charges. Mm -hmm. And so I would like, you know, one thing, and I know some of the organizations have some of this in place, but being there to support astrologers legally, Mm -hmm. um, if and when things, you know, the tide turns against us and we need help.
3: Yes. I think AFAN has a little bit on that legal support and certainly historically has provided a fair amount on that legal side. Um, But it's true. There are laws that make the type of work we do illegal in many parts in the U.S.
0: Yeah, and they're not enforced right now because that's not the mood. It's not. But they're yeah. on the books.
3: Yeah, someone could wake up tomorrow and decide, enforce.
2: Yeah, I mean, that those are battles that previous generations of astrologers had to fight that we, we're not dealing with now because of their, their efforts and their labors. So mm-hmm. the, at the Association for Astrological Networking Um, that was the role that they played. That's one of the roles they played is fighting legal battles for astrologers and getting lawyers together in order to fight um, anti-astrology laws that were not valid and that were basically like charging astrologers or attempting to throw them in jail. Uh, And while that's not been an issue for the past decade or two, um, there's no necessary guarantee that that will always not be an issue. And there's still kind of absurd laws on the books, like in New York, for example, where you have to say that astrology is for entertainment purposes only, mm. um, and getting in trouble if you don't say that what you do is just entertainment. Uh, so we'll see if that becomes an issue again in the future or if other. I mean, we should like certainly that.
3: enjoy our time in the spotlight with astrology being so popular and warmly received
2: yeah right well, now that's one of the historically uh, one of the things I'm a little nervous about is that historically when it does get really popular sometimes there is pushback eventually mm. and the question is if it's getting this popular what does the pushback look like mm. uh, and we don't know what the answer to that is yet because we haven't really seen we it we haven't got it yet yeah so we'll find out
3: stay tuned <laughs>
2: So let's move on to the next question. So uh, at Academic Astro asks, how do you explain your job to people you don't know well and likely don't understand astrology?
3: So we had a bit of a discussion about this one. It depends if I feel like they actually care or if they really don't care. And if I feel like they really don't care or I'm like, I don't really care to sort of connect with this person, I just go with I'm a consultant. And then they try to be like, what are you consulting? I'm like, wellness. What do you do? You know, and just turn the conversation around. But if I feel that they genuinely care, then I'm going to try and come up with, you know, the elevator pitch sort of simple summary of, well, I'm an astrologer, which usually gets a really weird response because as you were saying earlier, you know, you didn't know anyone who did this full time until you did. So when you meet people, you're an oddity when you you confess this. Uh, But usually I'll just say something simple like, You know, we use the movement of the planets in the sky to determine information about your personality or about the cycles that you might be going through. So just to keep it very simple, very top level, kind of like how you describe it almost to a brand new client. That's like, I don't really know what this is about, but I'm just really interested and open because you do get clients like that. I know it's tricky, like, right. Well, not tricky, but there's so many clients that will come in now that know a lot about astrology, but you do still get Their friends or their friends of friends that um, may not really know what you're doing. So that's kind of how I'd approach it. But Austin, how do you go about this?
0: So writer or consultant? That's it. Right. Um, uh, Let's see. Yesterday, somebody somebody asked me what I did, and I think I told them that I I was like a consultant, and they're like, oh, what do you do? I was like, oh, I help people with timing, help people pick good times for things. And they were like, yeah, timing's super important. That's great.
3: What do you say to this Chris? Uh,
2: I mean for years I would avoid it and I would just say it because when you're an astrologer one of the nice things is you have to wear so many different hats that you have to learn things like web design or like uh, shooting video or doing a podcast or uh, what have you. There's so many things that you could refer to which are genuinely part of what you do but are sort of uh, not your actual primary thing. thing. Uh, So for many years I would just say something like that, like I do a podcast or a blog or something, and they would just be like, okay, that's not very interesting, and then
1: uh, sort of
2: ignore me. So and you, would you would use the
3: podcaster river. as your kind of brush-off answer? Yeah,
2: but yeah. Um, in more recent years, I've sort of gotten more comfortable, and started to feel like it's more important to just say, I'm an astrologer, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that's one of the only ways that we're going to change the culture is by more astrologers, regardless of what their, their background or their comfort level is, with acknowledging that and some of the the blowback, because part of the reason that you guys don't say that, of course, you, analyze, I don't, you don't, don't want to deal with more. the
3: blowback at the moment.
0: You, I, the I just don't want to deal with like, try, giving an hour long lecture. Being like, well,
3: when somebody then tries to challenge you on it, it's like, I don't really care to defend what I do to you. I, I mean, you said you're a banker. I didn't want to fight you on the fact that you're a banker. <laughs> Right. Or whatever they said they did. Yes.
0: Yeah, or like explaining how finance works. Because yep. like nobody knows what it is. Like if nobody knew you were a banker, like, what's that? And you're what's like, that? okay, so yeah. here's and the, the subprime- structure of lending institutions. Yes. and You know, you have to explain lending with interest. And they might think that seems ethically weird. And you're yes. like, well, yeah. you know, I didn't design it. But, you know.
3: Yeah, I didn't design the subprime mor- mortgages. I just sold them. Or so, Chris, do,
0: have, you have, do, have you ever gone with writer <laughs> As the like quick version, yeah, I think that's Yeah, a good I've one said for like you. blogger. Okay, blogger, well, okay. Yeah. So when I've said writer, they're like, okay, what have you written? What have you I write? read anything? <laughs> have you gotten that? Have you read it? What? Yeah, if you're like, I write books. You've they're written like,
3: a book. It's like, yeah. What books have you read? That, what have you written? Have, have you I-
0: been in that situation? Have you well, had to explain what book or I've books? Said
2: I, I wrote a book on ancient astronomy.
0: Uh,
3: you say astronomy. <laughs>
1: Wow.
2: Well, sometimes the problem, one of the problems is sometimes even when I say, I wrote a book no, in ancient, does happen. ancient yeah. astrology, they think you mean astronomy. Correct. So it almost doesn't matter. But that you know.
1: happens
3: all the time, actually. And like the customs guys at the airport, oh, you do astrology. So that's like telescopes and astronomy. Yeah. I'm like, sure, just let me into the country or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so have you had that, Austin? Like, yeah. what have you written and how do you respond?
0: Well, so I. Ch- with pe- sometimes people are really interested when I don't want them to be. Of course. And so I try to give the most boring pie of this. I have like a stock super boring description of 36 faces. What
3: What's where, a boring description of this? Well, I just start world. telling them
0: about an old, in like a defunct calendrical system that was used by the Egyptians and was preserved in various texts, but not used as a calendar, but it was preserved with images. blah. And I just this go on. So
3: I was going to say- you would lose people after calendrical system.
0: Right. That's the, that's what this is that's designed to do. This is when I don't want them to look it up because I don't want to talk to them.
1: Oh, my God. That's brilliant.
2: Yeah, but so so we've all avoided that question in different ways for different <laughs> reasons. But We're think, in good company because I know Stephen Forrest has avoided this question over the years too. Yeah, I think it's, though it's something astrologers, despite it being un- uncomfortable, need to start pushing themselves to do more because the only way that... The astrologers commonly complain about like the perception of astrology in culture and not being taken seriously or not being seen as a legitimate career field. But the only way to change that is by more uh, people just putting themselves out there and saying, I'm an astrologer and that's my primary profession. And you might get some pushback on that and it might be awkward or uncomfortable, but um, it might be necessary in order to start changing perceptions about what astrology is and what it is that we do. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would encourage people.
0: I told the bank I was an astrologer the other day. Did I was it? opening a new account and they're like I was like, Oh, I'm a consultant and they're like, What kind? I was like <laughs> <laughs> astrologer. Okay. And they're just kinda like, okay, okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, and I did that on like a rent application recently and I was actually terrified because I thought they might reject Declined. it just because yeah. of that reason, but I still did it partially just because of that underlying sort of idea or conviction that it's important to start doing more often, regardless of the consequences. Yeah, I that's figured really the bank point, would be Chris.
0: excited to host my money either way. Right, right. Like, I mean, they're I, not really. I'm pretty
3: sure the banks don't care where the money comes from. They do.
0: Well, to some degree. <laughs> I mean, that's true. I'm like, <laughs> there, there I didn't are think limits.
3: About the under the table <laughs> business. <laughs>
0: right. All right. So let's move so,
3: on. So yes. the next
2: question was by Drew Levanti. You're here, right, Drew? Hey. Hey, thanks Drew. for joining us. Uh, Drew asks, "How would you advise students of traditional astrology who are interested in making content? What kinds of making have been part of your growth as astrologers?" And then this is there's a sub question from another astrologer, Melanie Gurley. Are you here, Melanie? Hey, in the back, there she is hey. of the beautiful astrology podcast, which I'd recommend checking out it's and that's the name i'm just call it, not calling it beautiful astrology that's
1: okay uh, oh
3: it's called the the beautiful astrology the, podcast okay i what thought you that? were being descriptive no no, no, no. <laughs> like that's an unusual adjective for christy <laughs> usually i have like the flowers part
1: <laughs> so
2: melanie asks yes uh, What was the single most effective thing you did to gain enough clients to be self-employed? And how do you see this reflected in your chart? So that's a that's a good question because it's like a broader question, but it also ties into Drew's, which is one of the things that I think we all did successfully is at some point we made the transition to doing astrology full time, mm-hmm. and we were able to be successful doing that. And so we always want to try to help and try to encourage other astrologers who are interested in making that transition and give them as much advice and encouragement as possible. So what what was like the one thing... Is, was there one thing or the most effective thing that you did in order to make that transition and, and start seeing more clients?
3: Yeah, it's hard to sort of pick one specific thing. Sorry to give you a not direct answer because it's a, it's a lot of hard work over an extended period of time. Um, in terms of getting enough clients, um, Like, where do they come from? I would offer discount rates. Like, I'm trying to, because in the beginning, it was like, how can I connect with people? Because I knew the best form of marketing would be a happy client. So the goal was to, how can I get some clients in the beginning? So offering, you know, reduced rates or promo specials, you know, end of year things or birthday discounts. One of the things I found really effective in the beginning to get my name out as an astrologer was to go in to, esoteric bookstores when they were actually in you know the flesh rather than just online and just give free talks or talks that were very affordable so that you could get in front of a group of it only had to be 10 or 20 people to let them know that you weren't a crazy person that you were doing this weird thing but you had a level of groundedness or solidness about you Uh, so that was one of the things in terms of getting clients um but i i know in the first few years of my business i was still working as a massage therapist so i was kind of having clients for two different services um, because client massage clients would come more often once a month or once every couple of weeks one of the downsides of or the challenges in terms of why it takes a while to build an astrology client practice is your repeat business tends to be annually and that's a really long lead time. You need to then build up your client levels to much higher levels to be able to sustain the turnover um, from one year to the next. Um, so that's how I'd answer that part of the question. I'll come back to the other one later. But what, what did you do,
0: Austin? Um, I just did the same thing I'm doing now. Yeah. Like I... doesn't did, feel like anything different. Yeah, I did readings. I wrote about astrology and I talked about astrology. Yeah. And I wrote things. And you wrote things. Yeah, and you just kind of do that. You just keep
3: doing that. And you use that word grind when we're doing our prep. You just keep doing it and all of a sudden it starts working.
0: I I would also add, um, so Chris, you were saying, you know, wanting to encourage people to make that transition. So one thing, just being contrarian, um, I would also like to point out, and I pointed this out to people, you can spend a lot of time with astrology and you can get really good and you don't necessarily not everybody who loves astrology and wants to get great at and wants to do it has to be full time. Like astrology is very modular. Like you can expand or squeeze your practice Mm -hmm. so that it's, it's a part time or on the side or maybe it's bigger, you know, when you don't have, you know, if you're between other jobs or whatever, like it doesn't, You you don't have to okay. You don't have to be a full time astrologer to be a real astrologer, and that you know some people there's a calling to do it full time, and you know by all means answer that, but not everybody has to do that. I I think it makes a great side gig. I think in some ways I've been envious of people where it fit really well as like one of their things, um, because I I don't know I found it kind of awkward and difficult to build like a a, this is my whole thing out of astrology.
3: Yeah, and I think being um, you know, in the Like the performing world, they talk about being like a triple threat, where someone might sing and dance and act or something like that. And I think to be successful with astrology in terms of making a living, you do have to have multiple income sources. So if you're talking about astrology, presumably you're teaching it, or maybe you're running a podcast of some kind or a YouTube channel, but you you could be writing about astrology too. And I did a lot of writing of horoscope columns in magazines in the early part of my career. Uh, because that was a paycheck. That was a way to get started. And I don't know that it necessarily got me a lot of clients, but I was getting paid to do astrology. So I was just happy, basically, at that point. Um, so it's having that multi, multi-pronged multi approach, I guess.
2: Yeah. And I would just say for anybody that does want to make it their full-time thing, either in the short term or the long term, just to pick some platform or some way of generating content and sharing either your your research if you're a student of astrology or your observations or your work and just doing it um consistently like generating things consistently like picking something and then just keep focusing on that one thing everybody that's been successful that i've seen um, has been so because they kept doing whatever they were doing consistently for a long enough span of time that eventually it took off and I've seen astrologers do that with writing books. Mm-hmm. Um, so like my friend Ben Dykes, for example, he started with admittedly a rather large book, which is a translation of Guido Bonatti, the 12th century astrologer Guido Bonatti, but that book came out in like 2005 or 2006, and now it's 2019 and he has like two dozen books under his belt and that publishing books, I th- believe is, is his primary source of income. Uh, there's other astrologers who I've seen them start a blog and just through writing one post a week consistently, it built up over the years. Till eventually, they had enough clients to become full time. Uh, you know, there's other astrologers that are doing the same thing on YouTube right now, or on Twitter even. Uh, and for myself, obviously, mm. doing the podcast. I started the podcast in 2012 and was putting out episodes sporadically but i sort of kept at it and now it's you know we just passed episode 200 recently and we're doing this like live podcast event at norwalk just because it was something that initially was like a blow-off thing but i just kept doing it and eventually it sort of gained a life on its own and i think to some extent both of you in in generating content on astrology that's something that you did as well as you kept doing it consistently right
3: yeah, that's a really core cool, cool point is you just have to keep doing it. Even you have to, I mean, one of my sort of points for this question is you have to keep going beyond the point that it becomes hard or difficult. You have to move through the frustration and that fear of I'm not getting the results I wanted in the time frame I wanted. And you just have to keep showing up and keep doing it anyway. The blogging, it, the consistency is really important. And sometimes it's like you just outlast all the people that come up and, and then pop down. The, the consistency is really key.
2: Yeah, because sometimes it can take a year or two of not seeing any results and not seeing growth or or a few years and then one day due to luck or circumstances, sometimes that can change and and one of your posts goes viral for some really stupid reason and then suddenly (laughs) you have like thousands of people that are aware of your work rather than just like... A
3: few hundred.
2: Yeah, or like five.
3: I mean, on the topic of... (laughs) Like five. (laughs) um, On the topic of content and making, I wanted to speak to that a little bit because... We talk, you know, the idea of traditional astrology. I think there's a lot of really good content. The key with any content you make, there's a couple of points. One, you have to try and create content that solves a problem or provides a piece of insight for the people that are reading it. People don't necessarily want to learn, like your your general readers out in the public, they won't necessarily want to learn some really complex technique. But if you can create, if you can simplify something and show them how it will help them with a problem they're dealing with, that's how you're going to get more engagement. Um, But I also think there's something here around um, the idea of if you're really interested in a topic, you're allowed to write about things that you're interested in. It's not just about what you think the marketplace will go viral if you have a passion for something like I'm really interested in relationship astrology or whatever it happens to be don't be afraid to specialize or to streamline around that interest that you have because that will really help it'll help you act from an authentic place which I do think is then going to help attract people to you know because you can't serve every client you can't serve everyone who's interested in astrology and in the beginning you often take you know whatever client will come your way but as you get a little bit more established and confident you start to realize that there are some they call it like declining sales where you're like actually i'm not the right person to work with you because this is the way i want to go about it and you're really looking for that but you can avoid that by just continuing to put out things that are really authentic to the practice or the techniques that are meaningful for you
0: definitely absolutely all
2: right uh so let's move on uh, so oh, this is this the fun question? This is the one you guys really liked, uh, or, or that you two really liked. So this is from at Luna Aquarius on Twitter.
0: Is she in is the Scarlet room? Is here? Oh, it's Scarlet. Oh, she's hey. right here. Yeah, yeah.
3: A fellow Australian, yeah. so I'm very excited to answer this question, but I know Austin's really excited to answer this question, too. Well,
0: I'm really excited about the Australians here. Yeah. I want to take all of the uh, people visiting from Australia to the Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I want... Okay, excellent. And I just want to watch the server deal with everyone. Actual Australian accent. And I, if, if, you, if y'all can all order things that don't exist here by names that <laughs> the server wouldn't recognize and then be honestly upset because you yeah. thought you were going to find a little bit of home at the Outback yes. Steakhouse. And I'd
3: be like, this isn't how we do it in Australia. <laughs> One of those annoying um, uh, tourists. Potato anyway. scallops. <gasps> Nobody knows what we're talking about. Scallop potatoes? No, it's not scalloped potatoes. It's a round piece of potato that is deep fried in batter. So like a gigantic chip, I guess. But you would get them after school when you're walking home and they're dripping oh, and so At the fish and chip shop. Yeah, so we're really talking Australian now.
0: Yeah, so we'll order that. We'll
3: have, we're will have. we having a bit of a chin wag. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Nobody knows what that means either. It's just a chit chat in Australian. Have you ever seen so, but anyway, this is... Sorry? Okay. So, Austin, Or oh Chris, do you have a funny story? Uh,
2: so, Scar- let's read your question. Yeah, I'll read the
3: question. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I'm just so excited for the funny stories.
2: Uh, so, Scarlett asks, I want to hear a fun astrology stories where the symbolism was ridiculously spot on. So, uh, which one of you has a good story? I like yours. Uh, <laughs> well, do yours first.
3: Okay, okay. I'll do mine first. Okay. So, um, this is a Saturn story. On my Saturn return, I went to an astrology conference, and I met an older man who's now my husband. Now, what Saturn, house is your Saturn? The Saturn, Saturn is in the seventh house. I can always forget that detail. Yes. And what I didn't know till after the fact is that I actually had a Saturn astrocartography line through the town where the conference was, where I went to meet the older man who has become my husband. While I was on my Saturn return in my seventh house, so that's a very literal. You can't make that up. Very basic. And then, what did you ask? Like, it's in
0: Virgo. Well, we were okay. talking about the ruler and how the that ruler. actually described the character of the, or the profession of the older man.
3: Of oh, the older man, who's an expert in education, basically. Partly because he's bilingual. So, the
0: ruler is Mercury.
3: The ruler of all of this is Mercury, because I've sat in Virgo. So, that's my story of like really simple symbolism for you, Scarlett. Good.
0: All right. So, I, we were thinking about this and. I have a good one from yesterday. Yeah. So um, I we flew during the moon's monthly conjunction with that Saturn South Node Pluto trio of delight, um, <clears throat> and so I I, don't know, I was extra cranky and uh, like travel hateful, um, which wasn't surprising. But whatever. Um, and I, I I always bring basically a suitcase of books, because I'm like, yeah, but I might want to read that. And so what I ended up reading um, was a collection of case files of children who appear to have remembered past lives or past incarnations. So I was reading that I wasn't thinking about the transit and thinking about it. Now I'm like, oh, I was literally people remembering through death on the Saturn, while the moon was conjunct with Saturn and Pluto. And then the kicker was that when I got off the plane, I turned my phone back on, uh, a friend of mine who's got i don't know five six, twelve kids yeah there's more there's another one every week or so. anyway, a friend of mine who's a father um had texted me. we go back and forth, and he's like, oh, the kid's bunny died today, and so his his day was just talking to the kids about their dead bunny,
3: yeah, which is a big thing for kids
0: yeah, he's like, i wasn't that bummed out, but it was hard to like. Talks you know he Bible was like but i was about... sad i was sad for them yeah but so that was pretty good like just and you know monthly moon over saturn pluto Isn't south note is like me reading about um memories through death and yes. then bunny death bunny and death. children dealing with death children or yes. engaging with death i like that yeah
3: and, but didn't you have a different story too
0: yeah i've got lots of stories that was just yesterday
3: yeah there was another <laughs> one though
0: Chris, do you want to tell your story? You, yeah,
3: I like your story, Chris.
2: Sure. So I had one that happened recently. It was the first thing that came to mind when I read your question. Um, and it's, it was kind of a weird story, but it was an interesting one that I'm still, like, uh, trying to grapple with the what it means. But so not that long ago, Lisa and I hosted a meeting of our local astrology group, and we saw that the start of the meeting was going to be really close to when the Ascendant would change signs. And as soon as it would change signs, Uh, it would put Mars in the tenth whole sign house and we were really a little nervous about that and wanted to avoid that so we were going to start the meeting early to avoid putting Mars in the tenth house in a day chart because we were concerned about some sort of Martian uh, significations of like strife or something coming up in the meeting even though we didn't really know what that would look like because we were just hosting an astrology lecture from a guest who was flying in from out of town uh, so we were rushing to like launch the the meeting and start it just a few minutes early, but then something came up that delayed us. And by the time we started, and by the time the lecturer started giving his presentation, um, the ascendant has changed signs and Mars was in the tenth whole sign house. So we we're like, uh, oh well, like you know, hopefully hope for the best. And at some point, about halfway through this guy's lecture. Um, somebody in the audience who we'd never met before at the meeting started heckling the speaker and like really grilling him on this question that seemed a little bit weird and really antagonistic and it almost derailed the entire lecture and uh, Lisa of course like pulls out her phone and looks at the chart and Mars had just hit the exact degree of the Midheaven at that exact moment when the lecture was like interrupted by this really kind of aggressive and, and awkward question and to me that was like a great very literal manifestation of astrology and that would actually be the end of the story but then a week later uh we went out to there was uh, an astrologer who came through from out of town actually i think he's in the audience cameron there he is yeah he came in uh from out of town and we went out to lunch about a week later and we ordered our food and we're talking with him and his girlfriend and having a good time and then our food starts being delivered and then we hear this voice that says, oh, it's you guys. And I turn and look, and it's the the, the person who started heckling our speaker a week ago turns out to be our waitress. Uh, and we say uh, hi, and we sort of talk with her a little bit and try to understand a little bit of where she was coming from. But then immediately afterwards, we both pull out our phones and look at it, and Mars was exactly on the midheaven once again. Uh, so. No, no, I, and I don't know. I'm still like trying to f- understand what the meaning of that was, <laughs> but it was a really like weird sort of literal astrological correlation that probably has some like deeper significance of some sort. But those yeah. are the types of things that sometimes happen in astrology, and if you're paying attention, you'll see them. But if you're not paying attention, you know it's easy to like never have known that Mars was on the midheaven both of those times. So I don't know what to learn, or take from that, but it was an interesting I feel example. like that's
3: Mars in action, really. Yeah, it's yeah. a very
2: literal Mars example.
3: Yeah. And then the fact that it happened twice, I think that's brilliant. Right. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, so that's it. Should we move on to the next question since we're running out of time?
0: Uh, okay. our, our, I think we've got like an hour left. <laughs>
2: about 50 minutes. 53
0: minutes. Okay, I mean, we can move on.
2: Okay. okay.
3: You don't want to tell your dentist story? No. I, no, that's no right. okay. Okay. <laughs> It's your theme. Okay, so you've got your next question?
2: Yes, do you want to read it? Yeah, because you're going to answer this. Um,
3: So this is from Melinda St. Clair. What were the untranslated works found that have recently been translated?
0: Where were they? Oh, where were they? Oh, my
3: God, sorry, what? (laughs) Where were the untranslated works found that have been recently translated? Tell us, Chris, where? Right,
2: so there's a really quick answer to that. One of them is that there's a lot of texts that are in libraries where scholars have gone back and like found these ancient texts, and then they've edited them and printed them in like modern critical editions. And they're just sitting in libraries for the past century, and nobody was translating them. So over the past 20 years, part of what astrologers have been translating were just these books sitting in libraries waiting to be translated. Um, Part of the other answer to that question is there's also libraries around the world where there's manuscripts that are handwritten and some astrologers like Ben Dykes are actually going to those libraries or have contacts in those libraries and they're getting like photocopies of some of those texts and then translating them. So they're basically just sitting in libraries and private collections around the world waiting to be translated but you have to learn the ancient language first before they can be translated.
0: Um. Yeah, and yeah, and part of that also is when, uh, for example, if you read Bonatti, um which has been translated for us courtesy of Ben Dykes, he will refer to a variety of sources. And so one of the ways this has happened is somebody's like, "Oh, well, Benati's referencing Mashallah here," and then if you're interested in investing, you're like, "Oh, is there a translation of Mashallah? Oh, nobody's done that." And that's that's also part of how it happens. Of yeah. course, they're they're found in those collections, but
3: yeah, but they're they're there. People know they're there. They just haven't been all translated yet.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's the answer. The quick answer to that question. You guys really liked this question, right? Did you want to read it? The next question sure. okay.
3: uh, so this is b- b- uh, from Leslie Cohen let's try not to stuff this one up via email can you clarify how it is determined which planet is separating or applying there was there was more to this question but this is basically the, the gist of it in terms of movement with aspects do you want to answer sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> we both teach on this so you probably have a beautiful right
0: so w- okay it would be the, the, the- all right <laughs> So, um, I don't know why this is a, a hilarious interaction. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, anyway, so we have aspects, and yes. then we have an orb, right? So the trine is in an ideal world, 120 degrees. Most trines are not ideal. It might be five off in one direction or another, or seven, or however long or however far you allow. And so if the if the aspect would have been perfect, you know, several days before, then oh, then it's departing or it's separating. The 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 aspect has already become perfect and now it's decaying or it's moving on. Yeah. And if it's you know, let's say it's five. Let's uh, let's say the moon is at. 4 degrees Sagittarius and Jupiter is at 10 degrees Sagittarius, then that's an applying aspect because the moon is moving into conjunction with Jupiter.
3: Because the moon always moves faster than Jupiter.
0: Right. Yeah. And so if it's, you know, if in a given chart, that aspect is going to be complete in the future after the chart, it's applying. Uh, and then if it already happened, but you still got some some love from whatever that angle is, um, that's separating. And, yeah. th- and that's a, a sort of a fundamental piece of aspects that I think is sort of becoming part of the new curriculum, but wasn't it wasn't in any of the it uh, wasn't emphasized in any of the books that I had sort of growing up in astrology. I know I teach that and you teach that and yeah. Chris, I know I, you teach that as well, um, but it didn't used to be standard for no. whatever reason.
3: When I was taught astrology, I did not get taught like, in the modern Western applying and separating i mean i think the tricky thing with figuring out whether which planet is separating or applying it's the faster moving planet will either be doing the separating or the applying the challenge is to work out of the two planets in the aspect which one is faster at the time and there's a general guideline like the moon will always be faster than everything Everything. Um, if you have a venus like a moon venus aspect normally the moon would be sorry beg your pardon hang on I need we needed a different example Um. (laughs) Yeah, mercury anything because mercury is normally quicker except when it's stationing except um, when it's not when it's not Yeah, and that's the challenge is you have to double-check the actual speed of the planet on the day Um, And then the yeah the degree factor if the faster moving planet has a lower degree than the one it's applying to or moving to Yeah, Yeah,
0: well, I mean and so the interpretive value is is this something that's building yeah or is it something that's just occurred that we're you know um, processing right and so we talked about this and whether i should use my teaching analogy so for those of you who have taken my classes you you will remember this from the video (laughs) um so i use punch in the face um as my (laughs) teaching metaphor so an applying aspect is someone says, I'm going to punch you in the face in five minutes, right? So you're like, oh, shit. Like, and you're thinking about it. And, you know, you're like, oh, is this going to, you know, I, coming, coming. right? How do I take this best, right? Yeah. Is this going to damage do me? Like and then the, the aspect completing is you get punched in the face. Yeah. And then the separating aspect is, oh, my, holy shit, I just got punched in the face. But, but it's it's separating, right? And so now you have a chance to process that. You're like, wow, that was way worse than I thought. Or like, I think I'm going to be okay, or now I hate them, or now I'm going to punch them back. <laughs> right, but next. it's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's whatever's next, or, yeah. you know, it's the, I have also used the somewhat less martial analogy of mail, like the, you know, the... Oh, the
3: letter coming in the post. Yeah, the letter's
0: yeah. like, is the letter coming, or um, is the letter been delivered? You see someone walking towards you to have an interaction, mm-hmm. Or are they walking away after an interaction? The focus of both things, uh, both situations when it's an orb, is the event itself. Right, it's still the punch, whether it's coming in five minutes or it, just, or it happened five, minutes, five ago, minutes ago, that's still the, your center of, you know, you're thinking about that. Yeah. Um, but there's a before and after and a different relationship between to those the two. the event.
3: And in horary and electional work, this, the applying aspect sort of indicates something is going to happen or it helps the thing happen, um, horary and electional work. But if it's a separating aspect, it indicates something that's typically happened in the past or we're dealing with this recent event that's just happened. Do you want to add anything, Chris?
2: No, I think that's a pretty clear explanation of what applying and separating aspects is. Cool. Uh, or, or yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Should we keep going? Yeah. Like Forty-five minutes. We're like on a left roll today, to Lisa. Okay. Maybe
3: we will get through fifteen.
2: <laughs> All right. So uh, the next question is from at Circle Unity on Twitter. They ask, "What areas of astrology are begging for research projects?"
3: <laughs> well, I had one, which may not be super researchy. I'm not sure, but. I would like to see more books written by consulting astrologers about the experience of being a consulting astrologer, almost like from inside the consulting room. If I had all this extra time, I would just sit down and write it myself. So maybe I'll do that in a few years. But I I think, you know, we we have a lot of books on beautiful techniques and historical approaches, but that idea of the lived application in the one-on-one astrologer client setting, I definitely love to read more, have more on that. And of course, that's again, the therapy background in me coming through where I know there are a lot of books in mainstream books from different types of psychotherapists, practitioners that write about client experiences or client case studies, not in a boring dry way, but just in a like a teaching way, partly from technique, but partly from what is it like to be inside a person and explore that. And I'd love to see that in astrology more. What do you guys, what would you guys like to see more of?
0: We mm, can think of a lot of things, um, which again are probably just the things that I want to work on. Well, that's
3: it's like personal, but people, right? Won't know but let's what, see in yeah. general.
0: I guess I would like to see more material from the Byzantine era, because there's a lot of like jumping um, from the late Hellen- or you know what is in astrology the Hellenistic period but which is really ends with the fall of the Western Roman Empire and then jumping to you know Baghdad 500 years later uh, and then picking up the story there and then you know jumping to Bonati in, uh, in Italy um, but the you know the only the western half of the <laughs> of the yeah. Roman Empire fell, yeah. um, and there's um, there are a lot of uh, uh, there are a lot of astrological treatises and astro magical treatises from the Byzantine era that exist, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's just like a nice that's a piece of the story mm-hmm. um, that would be nice to have a lot of research done on. Yeah. It's not like going to, I don't, and well, and also, um, and this has been done, but a lot of the Persian contribution to astrology, there are a lot of, there are just a lot of pieces. We've got a lot of, we've got the lot of landmarks. So I don't think we're mapping the trajectory wrong, but there are some very interesting stops along the way that I'd like to see more work done on.
2: Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest areas of research right now is, uh, over the past 20 years, twenty years ago or twenty five years ago a lot of translation projects started because there were hardly any translations of astrological texts, but now, almost three decades later, there's dozens and dozens of translations, and the majority of the ancient traditions have been recovered at this point, and you can read most of them in translations. And now a lot of the work that needs to be done is there needs to be more of an effort to study individual techniques and how they're used and defined in different astrological traditions and comparisons between, you know, for example, the void of course moon, even though that has a very specific definition in modern times, there's at least three or four different definitions of it in other traditions over the past 2000 years. And most astrologers don't know that because it hasn't been studied very much. So just defining some of those things, but then also uh, comparisons between astrological traditions and like astrologers getting together Mm. and getting like um, an evolutionary astrologer and a hellenistic astrologer and having both of them delineate the same chart or getting a you know a renaissance astrologer and an indian astrologer and having them delineate the same chart because sometimes through comparisons like that you get a better sense of where each tradition is and how they approach things yeah. so those are some of the most re- interesting research projects to me from my standpoint yeah i
0: think the comparative stuff is really rich yeah And I also like the kind of longitudinal, like, let's take perfections and follow perfections around the world for 2,000 years.
1: Mm. Right. Okay.
0: I have a really boring idea of vacation.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'd like to hear the results of that vacation (laughs) once you get around to it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right, Uh, so the next question, uh, again from Jason, actually. He says, I've read that horary was a traditional first entry for new astrologers. Uh, From a learning standpoint, does this make sense? Can learning to read horary help you with delineating a birth chart, or are the skill sets and orientations very different?
3: Do you guys want to put some historical context?
2: Uh, Yeah, I don't think that's true, and the only people that say that are people whose primary practice is (laughs) horary astrology. And there are some traditions like Renaissance astrology in the Renaissance tradition, for example, Horary in Lily's text he teaches Horary first between, before he teaches natal because Horary was clearly his primary approach. But in other traditions like in Hellenistic astrology for the first like thousand years of the practice of Western astrology, it's largely just natal with some electional. so they didn't even hardly have Horary. So you couldn't say that that's true for that tradition. And even in modern times, in 20th century astrology, natal was always dominant over horaries. So it's not necessarily historically true that that's always been the case, that horary has been taught first.
0: Well, I I also think uh, from a pedagogical or just approach to learning perspective, like probably you should start with the thing you want to get good at, right? Like if you want to be awesome at electional astrology, like start... With a curriculum focused on electional, if you want to be awesome at natal, start with that. I think that once you, you know, kind of get your feet under you in any individual branch, there's a huge richness Mm. to, you know, going from natal to horary or taking what you understand from natal and seeing how it's the same and different in electional. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, on a basic level, like start with what start with the branch you want to get good, good at.
2: Yeah, because even if, if you start with one, then you, you can sometimes develop a weakness in others. You really want to start with the one that you really want to develop the most. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Is that good enough of an answer?
3: I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think if you if your training in astrology was like modern, it would, doing learning horary would definitely add something. Um, but I don't know that I would say start with the horary.
2: Well, and and one of the points that should be made is that most of the techniques of Western astrology were originally developed in a natal context, and that would be my other primary argument from both a historical and a practical perspective is like the idea of houses, of the signs of the zodiac, the significations of the planets, Mm -hmm. um, and the other pieces of Western astrology were originally developed in a natal context. So it makes more sense to learn them in that context first. And then expand that to include horary and electional and medical or or what have you.
0: So that's interesting. I would agree with that statement, but I think that we can add... I I would agree that the significations of the houses and all that um, were developed in and come out of a natal context. But I think that if we're looking at what's the oldest using the configuration of planets and stars... To determine when to do things or to comment on human life, I think electional is older, but all of the equipment that we have was developed in the context of uh, of natal.
2: Right. Yeah. And that's my only point is just that fourfold system which characterizes Western astrology developed in a natal context. All right. Yeah. Uh, So let's move on to the next question. So the next one was um, from YouTube. Somebody named SS. They say, "How do you determine how much to charge for a reading?" How did you guys first determine that?
3: That's a really good question, isn't it? Uh, I'm like, what did I charge out of the gate? Maybe seventy dollars an hour, Australian, which is probably about fifty (laughs) dollars American because of the currency conversion. But how did I I think I just I looked around. You know, what were people charging for about an hour of their time? you know, that I felt comfortable just as a starting point. Factoring in that with an astrology consult, the client is going to pay you for the hour you spend together, but they're also paying you for the prep time that you do. And if it's an hour consult, there's potentially an hour of prep in there as well, certainly in the beginning. So trying to factor that in and sort of work out some type of hourly rate that was sustainable in the sense that it might cover, you know, two hours of your time if you have to rent a room to meet someone. In, if you're not working from home, this was when I started back in the day before it was all online. If you're doing it online, the internet's pretty cheap, relatively speaking. Um, how did you guys determine this in the beginning? Let's see.
0: The first two readings I can remember being compensated for. One, I was bought an order of General Tso's chicken.
3: Right. And then the
0: other, somebody made me a mixtape.
3: A mixtape? Yeah. Wow.
0: Both were similarly meaningful.
3: <laughs> I like it. And then, when you decided to put a price on it, how did you go about that?
0: I don't know. I, I, it was not um, methodical. It was, methodical. It was. I don't have like a. I don't have a, a brilliant set of thoughts that would help anyone. Like it was very <laughs> difficult for me to figure out what to charge and if to charge yeah. and feeling, you know, conflicted about that. And, you even but should. then, like being like, oh, I do have to pay. For food and this is what I want to do all the time and so yeah um so
3: I have to charge something yeah more than chicken so
0: I don't know be anxious and conflicted about it and eventually be like okay I guess I'll do that <laughs> like not not advice that was my process that was your, well but
3: that's people will relate to that because I'm sure many people have struggled about should they charge and when when should they start charging for instance which is a tricky one
2: yeah, and I think everybody at some point, once you've been studying for a while, just needs to start charging some very small amount, even if it is only like five dollars or ten dollars, so that there's some sort of exchange for your time in exchange for some something of value, um, and then eventually slowly work your way up from there. But then eventually, once you get comfortable, usually pricing within the astrological community is determined by what other people in your similar in your like peer group are charging. And comparing that basically people that have been studying astrology for a similar amount of time that have a similar amount of um, exposure, like reputation, a similar amount of training, uh, looking and seeing what they're charging and getting an idea for like what the lower end of the market is and the higher end of the market and trying to price yourself accordingly based on that.
0: Yeah, I'd like to reinforce what you said about making sure that it's an exchange um Rather than you're just <clears throat> kind of doing a favor for someone or putting yourself out there, mm-hmm. even if it's um a symbolic offering on their part, I think that that completes the it it, it makes the interaction what it needs to be in order to facilitate a good reading uh, so I think that's really important again, even if it 's just an order of general so 's chicken um But and uh, that's actually, you know, the like, I don't know what other people charge who are kind of like me was literally what's determined my prices for the last five years, because I was like, I don't know, what's the intrinsic value of this? What's the market value of this? What am I comfortable with? I don't know. Um, This is what people around me are charging. I'll do that.
2: Yeah, and it's good to be careful about it. I mean, I noticed sometimes there's some people that are too quick to charge more than maybe they should versus there's other people that sometimes are more reticent than they should be to raise their prices to a more appropriate level. Mm. I remember a few years ago, it was actually here at a NORWAC, like you guys <clears throat> sat me do- down and had like an intervention.
3: And, about your pricing? Yeah, and
2: said you guys, you're you not <laughs> charging enough. Sorry who's paid more. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, you felt like I wasn't charging enough for what I was giving in consultation. Well,
0: you, you were doing like an entire life's worth of Zodiac releasing right. as I remember yeah
2: like an entire life reading of like, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: all the points yeah 20 bucks come get it
2: yeah no.
3: I mean it wasn't quite that low but
2: yeah. Uh, yeah but certainly relative to what you guys were charging at the time it was much less it and was you less. Felt like what yeah. I was offering that I needed to sort of bring it up to a more average level yeah yeah
3: for sure. I mean, there's there's so much. Like this question on paper sounds simple. How much? How do you determine? Do these three steps? But as Austin said, grapple with your internal stuff and just try and figure it out.
0: Or, or don't.
3: Or don't. <laughs> but part part of it is though. There's a unique thing when you go into business for yourself, which is what you're doing as an astrologer. We forget that component. There are other people in other industries doing something similar you go from having a job, you know, when you work in say sort of an office or maybe you work in a coffee shop or a bar, I, I'm not quite sure, but just to make up an example, you get your job, you sign a contract, you supply some bank details and you show up to work and money magically appears in your bank account every week or every month. You don't directly interact with that money and so you go to take it out of your account. It's very different to then say to someone, I'm gonna do this thing for you, and in return, I would like to receive something from you. And this is why I think we give the same advice to our students, Austin, which is in the beginning, get something, make it a barter. If you're more comfortable with the chicken or you want a bouquet of flowers and they're gonna bake you a flowerless chocolate cake, ask them to do something for you because that is a way of you honoring that what you're offering them has value and then participating in that exchange is their understanding and respect of the value of what you're providing for them. And you then move up from that. You move up from the bake me a chocolate cake, which is what I would go for, to uh, I'm going to charge $20. And that's totally different again. You're actually putting your hand out and saying I would like you to give me some money. Now you may not actually do it in cash in the session but you're going to send them a PayPal Link, or you're going to get them to Venmo the money. That that's a very different way of relating to money, and that is why I think people get very stuck on what to charge and how to charge because the process of receiving the money is new, it's different and unfamiliar, and then we're a little bit like, how do we actually go about that?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and that uh, you know, money money is everywhere and nowhere in our world. Like you said, you know, there were. We're ironically some if we're working for let's say a corporation we're ironically somewhat alienated from money because we don't have to you know, deal with the you know the the people that the corporation sells its widgets to, and say you know you need to give me this money. It makes yeah, you don't go
3: to the client meeting and say I need to take a check home today. Yeah, it's it's a time. much
0: more uh, personal. It makes you deal much yeah. more personally with money. That's absolutely. There's a weird intimacy. There's with a it. weird intimacy. And That's not necessarily why you got into astrology was exactly. to get intimate with. Money, (laughs) capital. Yeah,
3: it's usually like the last thing on your mind. And I personally still don't necessarily love it today. I always like to do the payment, you know, before or after the live session itself because I like in the session to be able to focus on just doing the reading. But it's very important to have the exchange because I think it enhances the quality of the experience.
0: Oh, and I would also just add, like, deal with whatever payment or exchange before the reading like that's my prefer don't leave way. yourself where you know like you feel like you're dancing for your supper yeah and then like at the end you're like that was good right now you're gonna give me money yeah because then um, that creates a nervousness yeah yeah
3: because there is a lot of energy obviously in the work we do i'm not sure if you know that hopefully you do <laughs>
2: Uh, and the last thing that's good is to start charging something, even something very small, like five dollars. Because yeah. for new students of astrology, it creates a pressure on you to perform and do your best. Yeah. I think that's an often overlooked aspect of charging for astrology that people should charge for because it will force them to sort of do better than they might otherwise and to be more like on their toes.
1: Yeah,
3: being a little bit afraid of not doing a good job can put a good a bit of pressure. I don't. You don't want to be so afraid that you get paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's another way of figuring out how much to charge for a reading. And that is, these are my monthly expenses. And I'm going to need to, I'm going to try and do five clients a week. So I'm going to need to try and charge X. Right. And if you think the market won't support that based on your experience level, then you'll need to get another job in the beginning like you can be very you can what is that reverse engineering where you figure out what you need and go backwards and then you've got to put the pressure on of like how will I find that many clients at that yeah. price yeah
0: survival simplifies some it things.
3: totally does but it's also about what the market charges because if you'd like to charge $300 an hour but nobody knows who you are it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get that so yeah if you're not getting as many clients as you want that may be a clue you might need to drop your prices at least temporarily sure anyway I could talk about this for hours
2: all right, let's uh, We've got more through to go through our last few questions. Yeah. So the next one is by At Goldie Sparkles and he says a discussion topic should be memes and the damage done.
0: Notice uh, that damage done is capitalized.
2: Right. Yes. Uh, and he's actually damage saying this. This is our friend Nicholas Polobinakis. Are you in the room? He was, but he, he might He was, have but he left. Okay. He's He's, running, he's, he's actually way. not being – he's saying this unironically because he really hates astrology memes. <laughs> Uh, and I think that's funny because it's an interesting discussion where sometimes I see pushback from some older generations of astrologers who see the prevalence of astrology memes as almost like the decline of astrology amongst the younger generations of astrologers, yeah. which is a funny sort of extreme reaction to have. Yeah. Do you have that reaction? I mean,
3: no, I don't. I feel like I just watch them pass by and funny ha-ha and on to the next thing. I mean, I don't... I... I'm like, hey, Nicholas, it, you just hey, Nicholas. came back in time for your question. For your question, how yeah. magic that you appeared now.
4: What was the question?
2: What was the question? Uh, memes and the damage done. You like that? Yeah, it's okay.
4: <laughs> taken from uh, The Needle and the Damage Done by Neil Young.
2: Okay. You're being poetic.
3: Okay. Oh, you're being poetic. Yeah. Okay.
4: <laughs> yeah. It's pretty extreme, but thanks for taking the question.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, Kelly was just disagreeing with you, I think, and saying that she lo- loves astrology memes.
3: I mean, I just, I just feel like... I don't even know what a good analogy for this is. I understand that it's not real astrology. It's funny. You know, like, what does your sign... What will make your sign leave a party or something? It's like, oh, ha-ha, on to the next thing. So, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a strong opinion, so maybe I'm not the best one to answer, um, I don't know. Do you have a strong opinion on this?
0: No. I mean, I like them when they're funny. When they're funny. And I don't like them when they're not funny. (laughs) funny. I made an astrology meme once. Did you? Yeah. So
3: you're you're part of this problem, is what you're confessing to us. Yeah. So I. If it's a problem, you're part of it. Let's
0: see. I I took the the what if I told you meme, like Morpheus face from the Matrix, and it was what if I told you there was a 37th face. It was... It was you know, just for was a conversation. This when came out? Yeah, I don't know, there yeah. was a thread that people like we it. were joking about it. So yeah, what if I so clearly I'm part of the problem, yeah. Nicholas?
3: Is it like comic books for reading or something? Like I'm trying to think of what it is, some sort of
2: yeah, I mean, Analogy well, that was one of the points we were talking about was that astrology memes, even though it looks like a recent phenomenon, if you go back to, like, the Mountain Astrologer magazine yeah. from the early 90s, they have um, astrology comics. worst
3: nightmare. A yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> like a, a little, like, comic that's written out. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's, like, something that is funny but also sometimes conveys some sort of deeper meaning that astrologers take for granted. And I don't yeah. know. I don't have any issue with astrology memes just because it's another way in which astrology is existing in the popular consciousness and is being spread around and I know there's astrologers that have been objecting to popularized forms of astrology for decades if not centuries like the development of like the sun sign column for example is something where some astrologers legitimately thought that that was like the end of astrology because it was being popularized to the masses and simplified to such an extent that Mm -hmm. They were sure that it was going to destroy the art as we know it. And while there's some level where maybe uh, in the popular consciousness, it did make astrology look much more simple and much more basic and open it up to more criticisms than it already was, um, in some ways that also helped it. because. Sunshine columns were the bridge for many people for thousands hundreds of thousands of maybe even millions of people to develop some inkling that astrology exists Whereas Mm -hmm. they might not know it otherwise, and I'm sure that's the same thing for memes today So uh, at the very least you would have to I feel like concede that even if you think they're evil It's like a necessary evil of some sort Would you No, you don't want to concede that? Nicholas
4: wants to challenge Yeah, you know, um, first of all, the system that's being used, the internet, Uh it's it's range, and what's happening is there's nothing like it in history, you know, so the reach is instant and huge. To me, the problem is, is people who call themselves astrologers, who are not, let's say, um, who are just starting to study, knowing that people will click on a funny image and are cashing in on something and it, that's all it is. And it becomes the norm. It's, it, it, it becomes normal because it's funny. And the people supposedly are getting clients and teaching that way and they don't know anything about astrology.
0: So Nick, you're saying that it's the memes are symptomatic rather of, of, a, of a larger yeah. problem rather than the being the, um, the flower. They're the flowers, not the roots of evil.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: no. I know some astrologers that use like maybe a version of a meme, right? And their practice is has quality and integrity. They're not just doing memes, right? They're they got a blog, they got a website, they got a YouTube channel, whatever else. There, there's something behind it all that's that supports it. To me, I see a danger with anybody who's not an astrologer clicking on a meme and they're going off on a funny meme, but they're taking it seriously to a point because normal, and they're judging, like, who they're going to date because of it, you know? Uh,
3: or who their flatmate should be.
4: Yeah, uh, <laughs> me, it, we all laugh, but it becomes normal after a while. That, to me, is the part where, besides people calling themselves, you know, those certain people on Twitter who just do memes or cashing in, they're not even astrologers. They're not even there. And that's the, that, those two things are the, the thing that kind of gets me. I don't know. Is that going to go away? You guys mentioned some parts in history in the past with certain things. I'm like, this is a whole other beast with the internet. You know, does it go away? You know, concerned about it. It's coming from a place of concern about the uh, the intention that somebody who's into astrology, who wants to become an astrologer. What's their intention behind it all? You know, why are they really doing it? Because there's people out there, they're only doing it to get the clicks and the cash in. They don't give a shit about the effect they might have on somebody else. Sure. So, so I'm not saying everybody does me. But <laughs> it, it's a big oh, part of what's That's going on. Amazing.
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I had Christopher Renstrom on the show in the last episode. And one of the things he talked about recently in a lecture for Astrology University, his, his talk, Trash Astrology, is that there's always been like a high astrology and always been a low-level astrology and that's been constant throughout astrology's history and that's always going to be the case. And there's always going to be that tension between uh you know the astrology that appeals to the public and, and the mass marketization of astrology and the higher level or more advanced astrological studies and where those two meet in between. So We'll have to see in a few decades if astrology is still around or if um you know it's been completely destroyed by astrology memes uh, but
4: one more, one more thing about this and this goes back to what you guys talked about earlier about like having organizations support you and so on and so forth and what i'm saying by this is at some point there's always a backlash just as we're talking about history there's always a backlash and if someone who's well, however young they are in the study of astrology, I'm not talking about their actual age, but they're young, certain things, things are going to come back around. And so we, we have to be ready for that. You know, we could have a laugh with a meme, but in the end, on a deeper level, culturally, you know, like we've got to be yeah. ready to support each other. Yeah. Sure.
2: Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah.
0: Well, I would also just add that astrology is in an incredibly strong place right now it relative is. to the last several centuries. Yep. So I think that we're probably in a good place to withstand the fury of memes. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Two,
3: because as two. you mentioned earlier, the host culture is favorable right now. Yes,
0: <laughs> right now. Right now.
3: <laughs> right now, so we can handle it. For now.
0: And that won't last.
3: It, no, so we should but that's just, fine. Like,
0: enjoy it while we can. Yeah. Are we going right. to go to our... Last couple
2: of questions. So one really quick uh, from at KingPlutoAT on Twitter. He says... I you want to ask a question about symbolic degree systems, the general consensus regarding this fringe technique? I hear a lot about it, but I'm not sold on its effectiveness. And by this, he's talking about different degree symbol systems like the Sabian symbols or uh, the Kosminski symbols and other things like that that assign meanings to each single degree of the zodiac, all 360 degrees. Yeah. Do you guys have any opinion on these? Do you use them?
3: I don't use them personally. And
2: why, n- why not? Why not?
3: Well, that's a really good question. I don't know if I have a thoughtful answer.
2: You don't necessarily have to.
3: Yeah, no. I, I was, like, my training was in modern Western, so I did learn a little bit about Sabian symbols in the beginning. I just didn't really vibe with them. So I went in a different direction. Sure. But I think Austin has a much more interesting answer.
0: Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think that as a project, it is entirely consistent with everything we're doing in astrology that increasingly small increments or divisions of the circle mm. would would um, yield a coherent and consistent symbolic meaning, mm. right? The signs are the circle divided by 12. The decans are the circle divided by 36. And there are lots of other divisions which yield, um, you know, symbolically coherent, um, you know, that are symbolically coherent. And so if we just follow this logic, to the degrees that makes perfect sense um <clears throat> whether i i most of our techniques don't necessarily depend as much on a single degree as they might mu- as they do within that wedge of 30 or 10 or you know 2 3.3 <laughs> 3 or whatever um but it's it's definitely part of astrology and I've, you know, one of the things that I really like from the Pika Trucks which I've quoted on the podcast multiple times, is that the anonymous author basically uh, says, and I'm paraphrasing, well, if you want to, you know, be really good at this, you need to be able to generate uh, a, you know, a proper image for every planet in every degree of the zodiac. Mm. Like, if you really want to say that you cannot, you understand this, you need to be capable of generating uh, all of those images. And then uh, then they go on to say, and an image for the conjunction of any two planets in every degree of the zodiac, in every three, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. And I think that that's a, that's a beautiful project and it speaks to the validity of that project. Mm. As far as the Sabian symbols as a specific stab at mm. that, I don't love them. I don't use them. Mm. Um, they're... That's a whole conversation about how they were created. Mm-hmm. Um, but the project itself, I think, is valid and intertwined with the basis of what we're doing.
3: It's a, like a, almost like part of a conceptual lineage, given the division by 12, the division by 36. Right and All the way down.
0: yeah, or in yeah. we can you know if you look at Hellenistic texts, we then divide each sign by twelve, mm. or we have the Navamsha, right, mm-hmm. where we're dividing each. I was each just sin- thinking, I was like, I don't know
1: the word. By not, yeah.
0: yeah, like the this means something when we do, when we subdivide is just part of astrology. Yeah. So again, the project valid that uh, that specific iteration. That specific iteration, not a big fan.
3: Yeah. What about you, Chris?
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't really use the Sabian symbols especially partially because my approach to astrology tends to be more, I'm more interested in astrology that's more empirical uh, Mm -hmm. in, for example, that like story of us looking at the charts right after we had that weird event happening and seeing Mars on the midheaven was like learning something from a specific event in our lives Mm. and trying to gain something from it. And that's like a a way of learning astrology and developing meanings in astrology that it's like, as it's specific approach Um, And to me, with like the sapien symbols, they tried to develop them, I think, by like writing stuff on pieces of paper and putting them in a hat and then pulling them out of a hat one day. And that's not like empirical or symbolic to me in terms of applying symbolic thinking to astronomical actual astronomical movements. Mm. So it's just not an approach to developing astrological techniques that I'm necessarily interested in. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe there's other people that are, and I'll, I'll leave that up to them. So I just want
0: to mention one thing. Um, if anyone wants to look up, um, you know, a, a degree system that's 500 years older, look up the, uh, was it, the Astrolabium Planum, and you'll see illustrations for each degree of the Zodiac, and they are more bizarre than the Sabian symbols. The one that comes to mind is one, I think, in early Aries that's a man with a dog head with a crossbow. And so i don't know what that means i think that oh i think i remember that because that's where my mercury is <laughs> is a crossbow wielding dog a, head a guy
3: with a crossbow hmm.
0: and a dog head but a anyway
3: doghead. i'm surprised it's not like some kicking creature <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's where my mars is
3: right the mars is in the kicking animal yes though
0: mercury Double. is crossbow Cross, dog head
3: i like
1: it Uh,
2: So with that, I think that brings us to our final question. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I like it. So the final one, was this the last one more or less that we were going to do?
3: Yes, this one. There's two that lead into the conclusion here. Okay. Do you want to read Erica's? The one on here. Yeah. Sorry, what were you saying? Do
2: you want to read Erica's?
3: Sure, I'll read it. So this question came in from Erica Jones, who was here. And it's no longer. Okay. So it could be interesting to hear some thoughts on the role of embodied mentors in the serious study of astrology if we take astrology to be a discipline that provides a sort of initiation or a rite of passage into a larger sense of self and being. The question was a little longer. We just kind of cut it down to part of one of the core components. Uh, so it's really about um, mentorship, I think, in astrology. Was there more we wanted to say on the question?
0: Well, uh, and Erica had a yeah uh, had a part of what was cut so we could memify the question <laughs> was um, uh, she went on to explain what she meant by embodied mentors, um, contrasting that with. Dead mentors, like you know, being really influenced by Valens or Lily or whoever, which I thought was valid, and Kelly didn't. Right?
1: Yeah, we
2: had a disagreement. You really objected to that idea, Kelly. That yeah, people, I had a strong
3: reaction. That
2: reading a book, that doesn't count. You were very strong in saying that doesn't count as a mentor relationship.
3: No, and I, I wanted to be really clear that I obviously think reading books by people who are dead is a fantastic way to get their ideas. I'm not saying we shouldn't read old books by people who have predeceased us, but I felt the terminology was a little, it didn't sit well with me in that my understanding of a mentor or a mentorship is where you're having a, a back and forth dialogue with someone who you are sharing your experiences and you're getting some commentary or some input or some feedback. The challenge with reading books by dead people—this <laughs> is where we went on for a disagreement—was it's a one-way feedback. You're taking their ideas and just you—you don't—you don't get to ask them exactly what they meant or the context. You know, and this is the problem we have with some of our traditional texts: is what were they actually meaning by what they said? And so I—I I found it really difficult. I, I think mentorship is incredibly important, and I think it's one thing that's lacking in astrology at the moment. And if you can pair up with someone whose style or approach to astrology that you really respect or are in interested in. I think it's a fantastic way to really apprenticeship yourself and develop your own technique, but I just don't think you can do it with dead people who wrote great books that we still should read. But Austin had a different point of view. <laughs> <laughs> Austin told me.
0: Well, I, I, I thought that your, your opinion was uh, a symptom of your insufficient necromancy.
3: That's right. Oh. So I, I basically I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing something wrong because I'm not getting the feedback loop from the dead guy's books.
0: Yeah, and I I mean that as a joke, and I, I know, actually yeah, mean that. No, but like.
3: You, but you kind of meant it a little.
0: No, I do kind of mean it. Yeah. Um, I like 64% mean it. Um, <laughs> to be specific. Like, if you are really connected to an astrologer who's not alive, mm-hmm. um, you know, like let's just take Valent Valence is a huge influence on you, Chris. Right. Um, you know um, what I? If somebody told me that, and I was advised, and they wanted my advice, mm. um, I would probably encourage like honoring them when you do your ancestor stuff once mm. a month or once a week. I would actually ritualize that connection, and a lot of people will get um, an experience of rapport and back and forth, yeah. not not the same as with a living person, yeah. Um, but there are ways to lean into a connection with somebody who's not here. Beautiful. So. That's yeah. nice. That's what I meant. But I yeah, um, living people are pretty accessible.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Could be, feel like, a more fulfilling back and forth. Yeah.
0: yeah. It depends what on what you, you want. Yeah, that's true. What you're Less looking subtle. for.
1: Yeah.
2: There's something important about that, though, because even though we have revived, like, the skeleton of traditional astrology in the past two or three decades by going back and re- reading First, William Lilly, then medieval texts like Bonatti. It's like we've gone
3: back in time, haven't we? Yeah,
2: the traditionalist revival happened in reverse, where it started with like the Renaissance the text with the 17th century, then it went to the 12th century text, and then more recently it's gone to the 1st century texts, which has been weird and had some weird um, side effects as a result of it going backwards like yeah. that. Uh, but that's what it took. For example, me and Dimitra have just finally released our books in the past couple of years, where some of the first works modern works on Hellenistic Astrology have been published, it took us 10 years of practicing the techniques and talking with each other um, and finding out once you learn the techniques from the ancient texts and start putting them into practice, you immediately start running into issues that the ancient texts don't tell you how to deal with. Correct. Um, And it's only through having that lived experience of doing it for a certain amount of years and putting the techniques into practice that you start figuring out answers to some of the things that the texts don't tell you how to, how to deal with. yeah, And that's actually part of the benefit of having a lived tradition. And it's something that the, the Indian tradition still mm-hmm. has today that we lost in the lost West it. was that continued transmission of handing down from student to teacher directly through a direct in-person transmission from generation to generation for centuries. Mm. So we're rebuilding that with traditional astrology. It already exists to some extent with modern Western astrology because there are some lineages to some extent of like modern astrologers where you have like Alan Leo and then students of Alan Leo. Mm -hmm. And then you go on to people like Mark Edmund Jones and Dane Rudyard and some of the astrologers that came in in the 70s and 80s and what have you, but that lineage itself is only maybe 100 years or so. Uh, So reviving those lineages is important, uh, but I I agree with you, Kelly, that there's something about having a personal connection with a teacher and a mentorship relationship that is unique and is different than textual analysis of like a 2,000-year-old text. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. I think they both have their place, but I do think the... The depth and the richness comes from. I liked how you described that, the lived experience and then and then the discussing. I mean, I was going to say chewing the fat, but that's an Australian term for talking about
0: things. We say that here.
3: You do? Okay, cool.
0: We, oh, we okay. did in like the, I don't know, the late 50s yeah,
3: maybe. I'm like, I'm like, you're going to just like throw shade on my country here, but it's true. Um, you probably did talk about it in the 50s and we just got it last week in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that, that was our thoughts on mentors and
0: it's important.
3: Mentors?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the, those are the links that form a chain. 100%. Right? You know, we're talking about like the, the getting the, you know, mentorship is getting those two links to, to fit. To
3: actually be connected physically in some capacity. Well, yeah. that's
0: inappropriate, Kelly. Um, oh. <laughs> but <laughs> psychically and intellectually. I love,
3: yes. I love it. I was going to say, no, I meant in the flesh, and that's not going to make that any better. I don't know better. what you're
0: doing with your students. <laughs>
3: I was referring to earlier in our conversation where we talked about the importance of meeting in person but yeah. We had a little we had a little donkey moment Chris sorry.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that was actually how we we're going to round this out. Yeah. We're going to bring things full circle by saying that that's really what we're doing here and that's the most important <laughs> thing. Austin's <laughs> oh, out. <laughs> sorry.
0: I'll stop ruining things. All uh, right.
3: There you go. Yeah, right. we um, we didn't have any bingo cards here tonight. Hmm. Oh no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Um, just bring them to Esar next year. No, you'll be fine. So, what we're you gonna fi- we we're gonna finish on something G-rated. Uh,
2: yeah, this is where we insert the like riveting conclusion <laughs> yeah. to this, uh, which is uh, the importance of astrology conferences and being yeah. in person in order to revive a living tradition that uh passes knowledge on not just through books but through uh conversations that happen in person in the same room together and remembering and literally remembering as a tradition why that's important especially in an age in which being in person and talking to each other has almost like fallen out of style
1: Mm.
2: uh so that's part of what we're doing here this week
3: yeah did you have a Talk to us on Sunday night and Monday about how fun it was to be together in person.
0: Well, okay, so we were gonna read this question, oh, which read the was question. why are you so enthusiastic about astrologers oh, meeting question. each other? Okay, and then and then my and it's from Nathan at uh N Fennel eighty eight. And my clever answer was to the people in this room who've never been to an astrology conference before, is why don't you tell us after the weekend? Yeah. Right. Sorry, but I had to explain the joke.
3: We, di- we just didn't set you up properly. No, it's fine. We're still but recovering. no. But seriously,
0: like, um, tell us what it's like. Tell the internet.
3: Tweet us on mon- Sunday night. Well, tweet, tweet us, tweet Chris. Tweet, tweet, tweet the
1: podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so Are we. You somebody oh <laughs>
0: No, but you gotta, you gotta promote the FOMO and the, uh, you know, you gotta make people feel bad for not doing this.
2: Yeah, but one of the things... And by which
0: I mean, you know, emphasize the value.
3: It's sold out, yeah. So people will have FOMO by definition because we cannot accommodate everybody.
0: One of the things that we did genuinely want
2: to do is it's very hard to, once you leave a conference, to articulate, like, why it was a good experience. And sometimes people don't do a great job of doing that and so most people if you haven't been to an astrology conference before they don't really understand why it would be a big deal or why you would spend so much time or effort or money to attend one so we we're hoping that everybody in this room could go home and use whatever medium you you prefer whether it's twitter or facebook or a blog or like a youtube video or something and explain your actual experience of being at this conference and why, if you would recommend it first, maybe you won't. Maybe but
3: you didn't like it.
2: Yeah, and, and that's fine uh, in and of itself. But explain what your experience was uh, to other people. And hopefully we can create some sort of library of that in order to explain to other people who weren't here what that was like. Um, and help to sort of make some, not just excitement about that, but help to explain uh, what the purpose of meeting up in person is.
3: Is One of the reasons I think it is hard to articulate is it's not necessarily a logical thing like, oh, I went to this conference and I learned some things or I met a person or I went to a webinar. For me, one of the biggest takeaways is a feeling of belonging and community and being part of something that is larger than me and larger than my regular practice And that feeling is very hard to put into words, but it is so much about connecting with other people who do this weird ass thing that we all love, that there's more of us now, which is great. But I think the fact that so many of us do work typically in isolation, we're solopreneurs kind of thing where we're just working one on one and we don't even have anyone to talk to over at the water cooler and so you get that feeling of not being alone and of being with like-minded people who share an interest or a passion that you do so that feeling is hard to articulate it feels a little different for everyone but i think that's a big reason why coming together in person is so important but then i am all about the feelings being the pisces on the podcast well one of them
1: yeah right
3: (laughs) Uh, yeah.
2: So, uh, and again, that just brings us back to this idea of like one generation coming into the community and one mm-hmm. leaving, and the important transmission that we hope takes place during this time. Um, and so, there's some like things that the different those two different groups I think should do. Mm. So, one of them is we're hoping that the um, older generation can be a little bit more active in passing things on uh, by interacting with the younger generations of astrologers and trying to. Um, connect with them because there's a lot of new astrologers at this conference. We had what like over a hundred people that raised their hand maybe in this room, uh, and hopefully uh, some of the older astrologers can connect with some of the younger astrologers and make that personal connection. And even if it's not a significant or like long lasting one, uh, it's something. Uh, so. Similarly, younger astrologers engaging with the older generation of astrologers, part of that is coming to a conference like this, but you don't necessarily just have to come to conferences in order to do that. Sometimes attending a local astrology group in your city um, is a big part of that. And one of the things I want to encourage younger and newer astrologers to do is to stick with that because sometimes when you attend a local astrology group, it can be kind of weird or kind of alienating and sometimes... People will attend one group meeting and then just like never come back and as a result of that some of the local astrology groups are dying out because people are so used to meeting up online and being able to just talk with other astrologers that have the same approach that when you walk into a group where everyone's not on the same page it feels a little bit uncomfortable Uh, but the local astrology groups are important and critical piece of the astrological community and they're the things that feed into the larger astrological conferences and things like that and if the younger generation of astrologers don't at least continue to uh develop and cultivate local astrology groups then it's not going to the community won't have the same vibrancy that it has had over the past few decades uh yeah so help attend local astrology groups And finally, one of the themes that came up in this discussion is uh, I think um, older astrologers should be careful about rejecting newer trends and themes, Mm -hmm. because oftentimes, whatever the new generation of astrologers is, they have something that's unique uh, and different about how they're talking about astrology with each other and how they're promoting it. And sometimes it's easier Mm -hmm. for the established tradition to reject that out of hand as being like dumb or stupid in some way. Uh, not realizing that that's just uh, a new development in the way that astrology is being communicated.
3: Yeah. Yeah, not rejecting things that they may not be familiar with or interested in
1: personally.
0: I I, I, I remember some interactions with some older astrologers <clears throat> not too many years ago where, and this isn't a paraphrase, it was literally you kids and your traditional. <gasps>
1: yeah.
0: He didn't ask me to get off his lawn, though.
3: He didn't <laughs> And he didn't tell you were destroying astrology? No. Okay. No.
0: I mean, I was clearly doing it wrong. You but were doing it wrong. Right. Yeah. But we, you know, and just to speak to in person, like, we had dinner together and continued to talk about it. Yeah. Right?
3: Which is beautiful, because then you can work through it. Yeah, and, and I was able to convince like-
0: him that he was doing it wrong. No, i <laughs> Uh, yeah, so
2: and that
1: so, they your points. Uh,
2: yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty much it in terms of uh, this overall theme of continuing the astrological tradition and creating um, More meetings in person in order to uh, develop a greater sense of community So thanks everybody who attended tonight because you now Even if inadvertently now you've participated in that process by showing up here in person and I hope um, especially at this conference uh that you will go up and introduce yourselves to like especially other people in this room once we get done here and just say hi introduce yourself create that personal connection and hopefully if enough of you do that you'll end up creating some connections that will last for the rest of perhaps your your career or your lifetime just by happening to show up here tonight and then meeting in person
3: yeah. You, you, we're all part of the future of astrology. So your contribution and your participation just helps us grow.
0: Right.
2: All right, guys.
1: Cool. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>